0: The sermon text this evening is from uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to read the whole first chapter. These are the words of God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes. But the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor, man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart saying, look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind, for in much wisdom is much grief and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we come to um, a book that is uh, very misunderstood with passages that perplex us. I ask that you would fill me with your spirit, that I uh, might preach your word rightly. I ask that you would give uh, all of us here ears to hear, to hear your voice. And I ask that you would change us in the hearing of your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and amen. amen. You can take a seat. What if you knew the exact day that you were going to die? What if I told you right now, you know, Jacob, I love you, man, but you got 40 years. And on this day, 40 years from today, you're going to die, man. And Danny, 30 years. Sean, 15 Rachel, I'm sorry, you only got five. Brian, three months for you. Well, the rest of y'all, 24 hours. 24 hours until you meet your maker. What would you do? It's kind of funny, but the funny thing is that I could be right. You have no idea when you're going to die. And what's more, you have zero control. God could stop your heart this instant if he wanted to. Any one of us, especially in these Moscow streets, could, you know, run our car into a telephone pole. You know, we get get, uh, blindsided by a truck. You don't have control of that. You don't know when you're going to die. Did you know that 150,000 people die every day? I just Googled that. I mean, that's a lot of people. That's like six Moscows a day. And how do you know that tomorrow, that won't be you? And if you don't know when you're going to die, then it seems that it would behoove us to be ready for it. And I wonder, how ready are we to die? Especially uh, us who are young, or think we're young. How ready are we to give an account to the God that created us for everything that we have done in the body? Because whether you believe it or not, that day is coming and it's only getting closer. And what's worse, the older you get, it seems like time goes faster. Remember when you were young and it seemed like Christmas would just like never get there? Like your birthday happened once a decade because you really want gifts or you wanted to have a party and invite all your friends? Or maybe you are a freshman and it seems like graduation is a long way off. Boy, I tell you, it was four years, or five, six for some of you, uh, may- maybe you got more. I mean, <laughs> when, you, when you hit the end, you look back and it's like the blink of an eye. You were just an ignorant freshman and now you're just an ignorant graduate. <laughs> <laughs> so how ready are you to die? Any day could be the day that we come face to face with our creator and we need to be ready for that. And whether you feel like you are or not, um, Ecclesiastes, this book, is really here to help you. Ecclesiastes is all about preparing young people for death. And by preparing us for death, it actually teaches us how to live. Ecclesiastes is all about learning to live in the light of eternity. It's really given, us, given to us to sober us to reality. To wake us up from our distracted daydreams that keep us from pondering where all roads lead. Judgment day. All roads lead to judgment day. So you could consider this book a sort of uh, preparation for judgment. A training manual to not just survive judgment day, but to look forward to it. If you're a Christian, you want to attain to that commendation from the Lord Jesus when he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Don't you want to hear those words? I know I do. Well, Ecclesiastes is going to show us how. Uh, So tonight we begin the first of probably, I think, seven sermons through this book. And tonight we're going to do something very simple. I'm going to, uh, your first application is to, I want you to just read this book. It's 12 chapters. You know, you could uh, put it on audio Bible in your car and listen to it. it. It's really not that long of a book. And I want you to read it. And I want you to think, do I understand this? And uh, if you have read, how many people have read the book of Ecclesiastes before? Let me just see kind of a show of hands. Okay, good, a good amount. And how many of you... Uh, feel like you have a pretty good understanding of the book? Not very many. How many feel like I got a lot of questions? Okay. Yeah, this this is, this is most of it. This, this is me. See, I, I pretty much choose to preach stuff that I don't understand so that I have to go study it and find out. And then, and then I, I teach it to you. <laughs> uh, so tonight I'm going to do something super basic. I, I want to just look at three pieces of vocabulary and isn't that a fun word three pieces of vocabulary that we find in the first chapter but if you understand them it'll really unlock uh, the treasures hidden in this book cuz uh, there's a lot of things that y- you don't understand because you don't understand these three pieces of vocab all right so on to ecclesiastes in the hebrew bible this book is called kohelet kohelet and it means the preacher or the gatherer. And this comes from this Hebrew verb kahal. And it kind of sounds like call, you know, kahal, kahal. And, and, and the, this is what Solomon does when he assembles all the elders of Israel in First Kings 8. He kahals them. And so we get in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes, it says, The words of Kohelet, the caller, the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So if you consult a lot of critical commentaries today, they're going to fall all over themselves telling you that Solomon didn't write this. Right? This is someone else. Those people are idiots. They do not know what they're talking about. Solomon is the one who wrote this book. He, it, it becomes pretty clear if you, if you look at the text. He's kind of the only person who could have written this book. So this is Solomon that we're learning from. And anyone who tells you otherwise, tell them to come see me. I'll, sh- I'll show him. All right, that, that's how we settle authorship around here. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, let's, let's look here. Um, in verse 2, we come to the first of our three important pieces of vocabulary. And if, if you have a Bible or, or a Bible phone with you, it might be helpful to just follow along. Verse 2 says this. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So when you hear this word vanity, what is uh, the first thing you kind of think of? Well, um, there's kind of two big definitions for vanity, and one would be the kind of like Jane Austen definition where a vanity is pride. It's self-regard. It's someone who really likes to stare at the mirror, you know. They're just worshiping worshiping themselves all the time, looking in the mirror. That's vanity, right? But there's other definition, if you were to look it up, is kind of futility or meaningless, someone that is kind of running in vain, And this last definition is how a lot of people um, actually interpret this book. They say things like um, Ecclesiastes is about how meaningless life is. Are we already getting the the audio Bible going? (laughs) No, it's funny. It's kind of funny. It's distracting, but it's funny. (laughs) So uh, some people say Ecclesiastes is about how meaningless life is. The, the writer is really this uh, unorthodox nihilist, and this is his uh, kind of nihilist's paradise, nihilist daydream. Some people say this is kind of the musings of a skeptic, or Solomon is taking on the persona of someone who isn't orthodox. Uh, so there's a lot of kind of uh, misunderstandings of this book just because they don't understand what this word vanity actually means. And I'll give you a hint. If you read this book and it makes you depressed you don't understand it, okay? If that's your big emotional takeaway, uh, you're not understanding Ecclesiastes. So what is this word um, underneath vanity? So in Hebrew, this word is hevel. Hevel. Can we all say this together? Hevel. We're we're just doing some Hebrew tonight. Um, And this word hevel literally means vapor. Hevel is what you exhale on a cold day. You know, when you can see your breath outside. Or if you were like me as a little kid, <laughs> pretending that you're smoking, you know? I don't know why that was cool when, when you're a little. <laughs> Did anyone else do that? <laughs> okay, just the guys. <laughs> we do this stupid stuff. So, so that's Hevel. It's really cold, you're breathing outside. And think, let's think about this image for a moment. Hevel, <laughs> it's something you can see, but could you, could you grab that and put that in your pocket? Can you hold on to it? So, see, heaven is something that's really there, but it's really temporary. It evaporates. You can't hold on to it. One of uh, C.S. Lewis's great insights um, in his book, The Great Divorce, is that heaven is not some ethereal, transient place. It's actually more solid and more substantive than this world. The author of Hebrews says, the physical tabernacle was a copy and shadow of the heavenly substance. You guys ever read that in Hebrews and wonder like, well, what's the real thing like? Think about how Jesus' resurrection body could pass through walls. I think if you were to ask C.S. Lewis, he would say, Jesus was more solid than the wall was, right? See, we, we tend to get it the other way around, but but... Jesus is solid. The resurrection is solid. The new heavens and the new earth are more solid than this earth. The physical thing is the shadow. Or to use Paul's language, the things that you think are solid are fleeting and temporal. But in the resurrection, we receive this eternal weight of glory. So you've got to get this word vanity or meaninglessness out of your mind. And I kind of wish that Bible translations would just. Put vapor in there um, if we were to read verse 2 again it would say vapor of vapors says the preacher vapor of vapors all is vapor and if you're still not convinced that's a better translation the apostle James riffs on this in the New Testament uh, James 4:14 says for what is your life it is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away so James would, would uh, be kind of interpolating this uh, concept from Ecclesiastes and applying it to you. He's saying, you're this vapor, you're this hevel. So everything under the sun is hevel. It's this, this vapory thing. It's not meaningless, it's real, but it's just fleeting. All right, so that's the first piece of vocab we need to get under our belt. The second piece of vocab we need to know to understand this book is this phrase, under the sun. And we come to this phrase in the next verse, verse 3. It says, What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? So under the sun refers to everything that takes place on the earth. Or you could just think of this from an earthly perspective. If you uh, were to read ahead to uh, chapter 3, verse 19, you would hear Solomon say this. And just, just think, does this make any of your systematic theology Christian alarm bells go off? He says, for what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and all return to dust. So if you were to read that and you're like, I thought Genesis says we're different than animals. Well, he's saying from an earthly perspective under the sun, you can't actually see whether the spirit of an animal goes down and the spirit of man goes up, right? You've never seen that. You've never seen anyone's soul ascend or descend anywhere. You know, from an earthly perspective, we all rot and decompose and go back to dust. Maybe a dead animal and a dead person and earthly perspective under the sun, they're just going back into the ground. You can't tell where they're going under the sun. this is obviously different from God's perspective which is over the sun the heavenly perspective so um, think about this book as kind of like taking a a tour with Solomon through his kingdom so we're just kind of riding shotgun and Solomon says uh, you know get in the Bentley I'm gonna take you around and you just kind of roll down the windows and you're just gonna watch and then Solomon's gonna tell you some things along the way he's gonna show you um, his impressive building projects that he has going Uh, grand gardens The palace, the temple, his throne with lions around it, pools of cool water, gold and silver in abundance, beautiful women, servants, animals, the aroma of fruit trees, decadent meals, these kind of penthouse views. And then after lunch, you'll get to see the best part, Solomon's library, right? The books he's writing, the books he's written. You'll see what it's like to be the greatest, most popular, most successful and wisest man alive. And Solomon's going to take us on this tour all so that he can tell you under the sun, everything you saw is vapor. In in case you don't believe him, he tries to prove this to you by pointing to your senses. He says in verse 8, The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be, and that which is done will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. So from an earthly perspective, your playlist, your music, your photos, your videos, your art, it's vapor. There's never enough good music to satisfy your ear. There's not enough beauty in the world to satisfy the eye. Just think about this. No one ever says, oh, that's a really good song. Never want to hear that again. <laughs> right? No one says, wow, that's a beautiful woman. You can pluck out my eyes now. I don't need to see anything anymore. I know that the the senses are never satisfied. We always want to keep seeing. We always want to keep hearing. I mean, I, I think the only thing we would maybe ever want to lose is our sense of smell. And that's if, you know, we're in a really dirty place. But by and large, we want to experience the full sensation of life. And there is this infinite longing in our heart for something that will hit the spot. And Solomon says, under the sun, nothing will quench your thirst, nothing will sate your appetite. I've been there, I've done that, I've tried it all, and it didn't work. Everything eventually evaporates under the sun. The third, um, and I wonder, are you feeling uh, the tension of this yet? (laughs) Are you starting to feel like maybe those people who think that everything is meaningless is kind of on to something? Because if everything is vapor, then what is the point? What is the difference? Where can meaning and purpose be found? And we'll answer that at the end. Um, The third piece of vocab is found in verses 14 and 17. He says, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. It says in 17, I set my heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly, and I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. So here, Solomon, is, he's, he's a wise guy, and he's so wise, he's saying, I'm going to use my wisdom to search out wisdom. Right? In, in philosophical terms, he's becoming epistemologically self-conscious. He's asking, is it wise to be wise? This is, this is the contemplation of the wisest man, and he's going to search out wisdom. He said, Is wisdom vapor? That's a question he's going to answer later but for now let's zero in on this phrase grasping for the wind what does this mean the word for grasping here has the the sense of herding or tending sheep Uh, you could possibly translate it better as shepherding or herding the wind think about sheep sheep can be controlled you can move them around you could lead them this way and that but try treating the wind like a sheep try shepherding that right Try calling the wind back home. Try leaving the 99 winds to go after the one wind. You, you can't do it. Who can gather the wind in his fists? Not you. Uh, the word for wind in scripture is the same word for spirit. And, and in Hebrew, it's this word ruach. In Genesis, the breath of life in man is called the ruach haim. And the point Solomon is making with this phrase, shepherding the wind or the ruach, is that the breath of life is outside of your control it's above your pay grade to control the ruach and yet this is what every single human being tries to do we are all trying to shepherd the wind we are all trying to be the king of our vaporous lives and solomon says you know take it from a real king the ruach will not be shepherded there's no handles to hold on to and the sooner you understand this the sooner you get what solomon calls The end of the matter. What was the point of getting in the car in the first place? What was the point of this shotgun ride through Solomon's kingdom? And he gives us the answer in the last two verses of the book. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to 14. So I'm giving you both the intro and the outro tonight. He says this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So, where can meaning and purpose be found? If we go back to this idea, if everything's vapor, what is the point? And according to Solomon, the thing that gives everything meaning is Judgment Day. It's judgment. That's what he says, God will bring every work into judgment, so fear God and keep his commands. Judgment day will be when every vaporous work is given its due reward. Judgment day will be when you answer for everything you've done in the body, good or evil, public or private. What that means is that your vaporous life under the sun actually matters a great deal. Not because it lasts forever, but because you will. You will live forever in one of two places, and what you do now will have consequences tomorrow for the greatest good or the most horrible, greatest ill. I think one of the best illustrations of kind of the whole book of Ecclesiastes um, is given by Jesus, and he has these parables. He has the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 and the parable, parable of the ten minas in Luke 19. And then that that parable of the minas in Luke, uh, Jesus gives one mina, one talent, uh, to each of his ten servants, and based on what they do with that talent on Judgment Day, God will reward them accordingly. So one man he goes away and he makes ten talents, and he comes back, and on Judgment Day, God says, "All right, well done. I'm gonna make you the ruler over ten cities." Another man goes and he makes five talents, and God says, "Good." I'm going to make you the ruler over five cities. But what happens to the other other guys? What happens to those who did nothing? Let's read Luke 19, 20 to 27. We'll close close with this. It says, Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept, put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have at least collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, master, he has ten minas. And he said, for I say to you. That to everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. So, what happens to the people that don't turn a profit on their mina? You think about the mina is like vapor, right? It's just stuff. But what, 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 you, what, what are you doing with it? God says, I want you to turn a profit on it. I want you to take the vapor of your life and spend it for the kingdom. And this is the only way you're going to survive Judgment Day. The only way you get through is if God says, what have you done with it? And you say, well, I've been justified by your son. And in faith, this is what I've tried to do with the vapor that you've given me. And God will say, I see your works. They were done in faith. And for whatever you do here in this life, think about this life is kind of like building with Legos. Everything is Legos that you're building. And on Judgment Day, God's going to come, kind of like a father into the room to see what, what his kids are building. And he'll say, oh, nice, that's like a, a cool tower. That's like a cool death star, you know? And, and then God's going to say, well done, my, my child. Now I'm going to give you the real materials, the solid materials to build that in the new heavens and the new earth. Right? We don't know exactly what the continuity looks like, but the parables that Jesus gives say there's some connection. One mina, one city. Ten minus, ten cities. And so what has God given you? What vapor has he given you to turn a profit on? If you want to be ready to die, if you want to be confident on Judgment Day, then you must give all that you have, all your vapor, everything, all of you, to Jesus Christ. Right? You've got, you got to throw it all to him. <laughs> That's a scary thing, right? You've got to lose your little kingdom-building project and say, I'm going to give it all to Jesus. I'm going to start over. I'm going to fear God and obey your commands. I'm going to do it your way. All right, to fear God and to keep his commands is the same thing as putting your faith in Christ. That's the only way any of us will ever hear those words from Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. This is the only way you can enter the Father's house, and isn't that where we all want to dwell? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. It perplexes us. It uh, causes us to do the hard work of study, to understand it. But you say that to those who seek it out, they will be rewarded. God, there, there are many in here who have a lot, and you want to give them more. I ask that you would make us good and faithful and wise stewards of the vapor that we have under the sun. I ask that we would not be blind to judgment day that we would not live ignorant, that we could die tomorrow. And I ask that we would live in the light of that eternity, that we would not fear death, that we would not fear judgment, because we have been justified by Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name, and amen.